Daybreak Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butte in Washington. Today is Thursday, July 21st. And here are some of the stories we are covering. A new report says African countries are partly to blame for food insecurity. Our food markets are experiencing a shock from outside the continent. If we had done better and had unlocked the full potential of the agricultural sector, we wouldn't be experiencing what we are experiencing today. Kenyan President Kenyatta moved to lower the price of maize flour. The East African community says member countries are not complying with a protocol to end trade barriers and boost growth. The Chinese embassy in Zimbabwe is accused of bullying the media. Protest in Nigeria as the ruling party unveils Muslim Muslim candidates for the country's top leadership. A medical doctor embarks on a walking campaign to ban alcohol use in Zambia. In Zambia, almost everyone takes alcohol, including children. It is really a disease now, it's a cancer, and it has affected us so much. So we are really headed for doom if we don't change. And the World Health Organization says millions of refugees and migrants lack access to health care. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Economic development experts are calling on African countries to increase trade with each other and revive agriculture to overcome food shortages and slow economic growth exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. The global food crisis has led to some 300 million Africans being food insecure. The crisis in Africa has multiple causes, persistent drought in eastern Africa, high food and energy prices and the cut-off of wheat exports from Ukraine. Speaking online to journalists Wednesday, Sivin Karingi, the head of trade at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, said African countries also share some blame for the situation. Our food markets are experiencing a shock that is coming actually from outside the continent. But why we are experiencing this shock is because we have very low intra-African trade in agriculture and agro-foods. If we had done better and had unlocked the full potential of the agricultural sector, we wouldn't be experiencing what we are experiencing today. Many African countries depend on two countries, Russia and Ukraine, for food and farm products. As the war continues and Russia continues to block Ukraine's Black Sea ports, experts are urging African countries to work together to overcome the crisis. Karingi says the country needs to start implementing the African Continental Free Trade Area, which economists say has the potential to bring some 30 million people out of poverty. The AFCFTA is actually offering also an opportunity to to trade in value-adding or value-added goods of those agro-commodities, so it becomes easier for you to trade in wheat flour or maize flour or sorghum flour that is made from one from one country to, to, to another because, again, you have the same standards and the rules of origin are agreed. Oliver Chinganya, the head of the African Centre for Statistics at the UN Economic Commission, says Africa is financially vulnerable to the global crisis. The Commission says as of May of this year, 23 African countries had failed to address the food crisis because they were at high risk of debt distress or were in debt distress. The Commission is calling for financial institutions to give those countries greater debt service relief. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. 
Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has announced new stimulus measures to cushion Kenyans against the high cost of living, effectively cutting in half the cost of maize flour. The price of flour, which is used to make the staple food ugale, increased to a record high a few months ago, pushing to extreme hunger many Kenyans living below the poverty line. As Atiano Odiambo reports from Nairobi, Kenyatta questioned what he calls an unusual relationship between elections and the increase in price of maize flour. While addressing the nation from status on Wednesday, President Kenyatta said the move is meant to lower the cost of living for vulnerable households. Kenyatta spoke after negotiating a deal with millers, resulting in the lowering of the cost of 2 kg packet of maize flour from current 1.6 US dollars to 0.8 US dollars countrywide. The move came as a relief for many Kenyans who can barely afford two meals a day due to the high cost. I note with regret and sadness the impact that it has had for a 2 kg pack of maize meal to remain out of the reach of many. And as a consequence of this continued escalation in food prices, today we announce a fiscal measure focused on food subsidy as our fifth stimulus program, covering the supply and distribution of our nation's staple food, which is maize meal, across our country. With the campaign period at its peak, the escalation of the cost of living has dominated campaign rallies, with Deputy President William Ruto accusing his boss and the entire administration of failing to take action. However, President Kenyatta, whose tenure ends in three weeks, questioned the increase of unga or maize flour prices just months before the polls. He cited the 2013, 2017 and 2022 general polls, where the prices of maize flour immensely increased a few months before election day. Kenyatta suggests that the political class and millers manipulated the price to tarnish his image among voters. Indeed, every election in our country has attracted an unga crisis. And in fact, at times it seems to be engineered. In July of 2012, months before the March 2013 election, the price of a packet of a two-kilogram package of unga shot up from 70 shillings to 130 shillings. Again, in May of 2017, three months to the August 2017 election, the price of unga shot up to an unprecedented 189 shillings. This is the highest price experience between independence and 2017. Deputy President Ruto's presidential running mate, Rigadi Gashagwa, however, claims that the government is only trying to reduce prices so as to lure Kenyans into voting for Raila Odinga's Azimula Umoja or Resolution for Unity Coalition, which is affiliated with the president. A packet of Unga is 250 shillings. Government is running around because of this election now trying to subsidize for four weeks, just after the elections. But they are not telling the people of Kenya how they'll buy food after the elections. This is being done to entice them to vote for Azimio. If government had done the right thing and supplemented farmers with inputs and fertilizer, they would have increased their production. President Kenyatta attributes the maize shortage to poor rainfall, global inflation, and the food crisis arising from the ongoing war in Ukraine. Atieno Odiambo, VOA Daybreak Africa, in Nairobi, Kenya.
It's been 11 years since the East African community agreed on a protocol that encourages the free movement of goods and people. But government officials ahead of a heads of state summit say that many member states are not implementing the agreement. Moses Javier Rimana reports from Arusha, Tanzania. It has been about 11 years since the East African Community member states signed the Common Market Protocol that promised to increase trade among the nations. In response, many countries removed visa charges for the East African citizens. However, not all member states have complied. Betty Maina is the chair of the East African Community's Council of Ministers. While significant efforts have been made to implement the Common Market Protocol, Laws and regulations of the ESE partner states continue to present barriers to increase cross-border trade and investment in the region. The partner states have deviated from their commitments through applications of tariff equivalent measures, resulting to an increase in non-tariff barriers by 85 since 2016. The East African Community Heads of State Summit is expected to take place on Friday in Arusha, Tanzania. Regional leaders are expected to evaluate challenges and the roadmap towards fully implementing the Common Market Protocol, which is the second pillar of the East African Community. Rebecca Kadaga is a Uganda's Minister for East African Affairs. Unfortunately, we are still thinking as sovereign states and planning as sovereign states. Consequently, there are still protectionist measures in the business in the industries, even in education. Countries have still not fully embraced the need to remove those barriers and uh, open up to one another. Like we agreed with common tourism visa. It's only Rwanda, Kenya and Uganda which are uh, operating this. The others are not, and it's, it's many years now. The East African Common Market Protocol guarantees the free movement of persons, workers, goods, services and capital. According to the community, Intra-regional trade grew to 5.9 billion US dollars from 3.7 billion US dollars in 2020. Still, other figures show that business between East African Community member states still only presents about 15 percent of the regional trade. Peter Matuki is the Secretary General of the East African Community. The community is growing. This is a market. 300 million people. We, our community actually now with a geographical space of almost 4.9 million square kilometers. And yet we are still struggling with the prices of our goods, with the, with the basics, with the food. And we, our, our dependency on what is coming from the global you know, sea. Economists welcome the removal of trade barriers, but not that the success of the protocol depends on one thing that is sometimes lacking the political will. Moses Aviarimana, VOA Africa, Arusha, Tanzania. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, July 21st. The Media Alliance of Zimbabwe is condemning the Chinese embassy in Harare for threatening a weekly newspaper after it published articles on alleged violations by Chinese mining companies. The group says the embassy threatened to take unspecified strong countermeasures against the weekly, which the alliance calls an attack on press freedom. Columbus Mavunga reports from Harare. In an interview, Nigel Nyamutumbu head of the Media Alliance of Zimbabwe said the media watchdog is concerned about threats 
made against the standard newspaper by the Chinese embassy in Harare. Firstly, the Chinese embassy did not specify what counteractions uh, they would take against the newspaper in question. And it's something of a concern, particularly coming from a global powerhouse in the mode of uh, China. Uh, to, to um, And this, in our view, would then also, uh, such unspecified threats would amount, uh, in our view, to an attack on press freedoms. Officials at the Chinese embassy on Wednesday said they would not comment on the statement by the Media Alliance of Zimbabwe. Uh, the Chinese embassy did not also seek any redress with the professional mechanisms uh, that uh, exist, whether through the ombudsman of uh, the Alpha Media Holdings, uh, which uh, houses the newspaper that they had uh, issues uh, with, or approaching uh, the self-regulatory mechanism that is available to also seek redress and to seek uh, accountability uh, and to get areas they wanted threshed out to be handled and also they could have used the Zimbabwe Media Commission uh, and even the diplomatic uh, channels uh, such that the issue could have been handled amicably outside uh, of uh, uh, issuing statements that have a chilling effect on press freedom. Zimbabwean officials could not be reached Wednesday for comments. In an interview, former Rare Mayor Muchadei Ashton Masunda, a member of the Alpha Media Holdings Editorial Advisory Board, said journalists at his table would not relent despite the threats by the Chinese embassy. The allegation that really stung me into action was the allegation by the Chinese embassy that uh, the Alpha Media Holdings journalists uh, were paid by a, by foreign linked uh, non-governmental organizations as well as a, a foreign embassy alpha media holdings is an independent uh, media house which is free from any political ties now it is anathema for any alpha media holding journalist to receive any payment outside the remuneration which he or she receives from the company. Masunda added that his organization would continue to report accurately and fairly in Zimbabwe. Columbus Mavunga for VOA News, Harare. In Abuja Wednesday, hundreds of protesters came out against the unveiling of a Muslim vice presidential candidate by Nigeria's ruling All Progressives Congress Party. The APC has already selected a Muslim, Bola Ahmed Tinubu, as its choice for president at next year's polls. The protesters say the party choice of candidates does not reflect Nigeria's religious population, which is almost equally divided between Christians and Muslims. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. More than 100 protesters holding banners and placards, including aggrieved party members, demonstrated at the national office of the ruling All Progressives Congress. An inscription on one banner read, quote, Drop Shatima and give the slot to our Christian brothers, end quote. The protest was to kick against the party's choice of Muslim candidates for president and vice president ahead of next year's polls. While protesters marched, party officials unveiled former Borno State Governor 
Kashim Shatima as the running mate of the party's presidential ticket holder, Bola Ahmed Tinubu. Both men are Muslims. Protesters said the Muslim Muslim selection is insensitive, especially following a recent wave of attacks on churches. Sada Peter is a resident of Abuja. The question is on what basis? Is the Muslim Muslim ticket flying on? Is it flying on the basis of competence or it is flying on the basis of political experiences? What is the rationale behind it? So this is strictly not on the basis of competence. On July 10th, Tinubu nominated Shatima as his running mate. The nomination immediately triggered widespread criticism from activists and religious groups. Among them are the Christian Association of Nigeria and Pentecostal Fellowship of Nigeria. Nigeria's population is nearly equally divided between Christians and Muslims, and past presidential tickets represented this diversity. Christian groups say a Christian candidate is needed to strike a balance. Bayo Oladeji is the spokesperson for the Christian Association of Nigeria. Look, look at the country today. Priests have been kidnapped, churches have been attacked. So what we are saying is that APC is to be sensitive to this fact. Every ethnic group, every religious group, they should be given a sense of belonging. That is what we are saying. The APC responded to critics and said its choice of candidate was based on competence for the job. For months, Nigeria has been seeing increasing attacks on churches and clergymen. Some activists have described the violence as systemic and deliberate. On June 5th, a Catholic church was attacked in southwest understate and 40 worshippers were killed with guns and explosives. On Tuesday, a Catholic priest kidnapped last Friday by armed men in Kaduna State was found dead. Church authorities fear the situation could escalate if Christians are excluded from the country's top leadership. Timothy Obiezu for Daybreak Africa in Abuja, Nigeria. In Zambia, a medical doctor on Wednesday began a walking campaign from the capital Lusaka to the central province capital of Kabwe, about 87 miles, to protest alcohol use in the country. Dr. Brian Sampa, president of the Residence Doctors Association of Zambia, says the government should ban alcohol because it is destroying lives, causing liver diseases, deadly road accidents, and failed marriages. The campaign is generating mixed reaction from Zambians, with some welcoming the initiative, while others say the good doctor should move to Saudi Arabia if he doesn't like drinking. On the road between Lusaka and Kabwe, Dr. Sampa tells me alcohol use has been a destructive force for many Zambians. I'm a practicing doctor who has uh, been seeing patients for some time now. And uh, even during the time that I was in med school, one thing that I realized was that alcohol was linked to most of the communicable and non-communicable diseases in some way. In fact, statistics show that alcohol is the leading killer in the world. That meant that, indeed, alcohol was not good for health because we are having a rise in non-communicable diseases in Zambia, such as hypertension and diabetes. In Zambia, almost everyone takes alcohol, including children. People as young as 10 years old, they are taking alcohol. It is really a disease now, it's a cancer, and it has affected us so much. When you are working in the ER, you find that on a Friday evening, 
the ER will be full of people who are either coming because of assault, some of them are coming because, you know, it's a BID, and those are people who've been brought in dead and in church, they are all smelling alcohol. So alcohol has ravaged Zambia for a long time, so we are really headed for doom if we don't change. And last year alone, we had more than 20,000 divorces, and the major reason why people are divorced was because of alcohol. Dr. Sampa, yes. there are some people who say, do not ban beer. Do you want to ban all alcohol? What we want to be banned is alcohol. Because when somebody takes alcohol, the major organ which is affected is the liver. Then, directly, that liver can be damaged. And that's what is causing the diabetes. And also, it also affects the heart, what is causing hypertension. But when you talk about the other effects, so third part effects, for instance, when somebody is drunk, and then they are driving, they are causing road traffic accidents. And when you do a research, you find that alcohol is again the leading drug which causes third party problems more than any other drug. So all the factors, all the scientific research has pointed to the fact that alcohol is not good for health. So you need to close the tap. As long as you don't close the tap, there is nothing that you are going to achieve. Some Zambians are saying, doctor, that uh, your job as a doctor is to treat people no matter where they get their illness. Well, the people are saying that they're running away from responsibility. One thing that the world is moving away from is curative medicine. We are moving to preventive medicine. No wonder public health is the main selling cost right now because people know that as long as we don't prevent diseases, we will not manage to finish the sick. And those who are saying that should also know that even if it's their choice to decide, it only becomes their choice when they go to drink. Once they are drunk, it's alcohol using them. And most of them have regretted. As I'm walking right now, by the way, I've walked now 71.2 kilometers, uh, which is more than half of the 140 which I'm walking. I've received a lot of people texting me, inboxing me, giving testimony how alcohol has ruined their lives. The people who are saying it's our choice are people whose lives have not been ruined yet. Dr. Sampa, thank you so much again, and uh, congratulations for your campaign. Thank you so much, and have a good day. Dr. Brian Sampa is the president of the Residence Doctors Association of Zambia. You are speaking on the role between Lusaka and Kabwe. A new study highlights the health risks, challenges, and barriers faced daily by millions of refugees and migrants. They suffer from poor health because they lack access to proper care available to their host communities. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The World Health Organization has just published its first world report on the health of refugees and migrants. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus calls it a landmark report and an alarm bell. He says the report reveals the wide disparities between the health of refugees and migrants and the wider populations in their host countries. For example, many migrant workers are engaged in the so-called 3D jobs dirty, dangerous, and demanding, without adequate social and health protection or sufficient occupational health measures. Refugees and migrants are virtually absent from global surveys and health data, making these vulnerable groups almost invisible in the design of health systems and services. Tedros notes, one billion people, or one in every eight people on Earth, is a refugee or migrant. He says the numbers are growing. Tedros adds that more and more people will be on the move in response to burgeoning conflicts, climate change, rising inequality, and global emergencies such as the COVID-19 pandemic. 
He says the health needs of refugees and migrants often are neglected or unaddressed in the countries they pass through or settle in. They face multiple barriers, including out-of-pocket costs, discrimination, and fear of detention and deportation. Many countries do have health policies that include health services for refugees and migrants, but too many are either ineffective or are yet to be implemented effectively. Wahid Aryan, an Afghan refugee and a medical doctor in Britain, recalls the conditions under which he and his family lived in a refugee camp in Pakistan during the late 1980s. He says they were exposed to many diseases, including malaria and tuberculosis. And again, the conditions that we see in refugee camps now in various parts of the world, they're not too dissimilar to the conditions that I experienced firsthand. WHO Chief Tedros is calling on governments and organizations that work with refugees and migrants to come together to protect and promote the health of people on the move. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And that's it for this Thursday, July 21st edition of Daybreak Africa. On behalf 